sentimentalization of Christmas. Welcome to Right Start with Jim Custer, teaching pastor of Grace Polaris Church in Columbus, Ohio. People have been protesting the commercialization of this holiday for generations. We're on our guard against that as much as we want to be. But today, Jim will warn against anotherization, sentimentalization, reducing the miracle of Christ's birth to some warm feelings about a baby. When we understand better the implications of the word becoming flesh, we'll have a deeper appreciation for that great gift. We're in John chapter 1. We read in verse 14, the word became flesh. That's this word who was with God, who was one of God, who was with God, equal with God, this word God became flesh, took up presence among us. We observed his glory, the glories of the one and only Son from the Father. Now that language is carefully chosen in order to identify the word as distinct in identity from God, even though he himself was God, John uses these incredible words. And since the word came forth, entered our world into our flesh in a marvelous, unique, miraculous virgin conception, since that's the way it took place, John called him son, son, and he indeed was. He was, in every sense of the word, son of Mary, not son of Joseph. He would have been Joseph's son, what, legally, since Joseph became Mary's husband. And as the legal custodian in the home, the word, now a man called Jesus, the word would have been considered and been legally, absolutely um, uh, appropriate or legally entitled to all the benefits, all of the family heirloom, everything that the eldest son in Joseph's family of children Jesus legitimately had that. That's why it's correct to say that Jesus belongs on the throne of his father David, because Joseph, Mary's husband, was the legal, rightful heir to the throne of David in Jerusalem. Had the Jewish nation been organized governmentally independent of Rome's obsession, and Jewish corruption, Joseph would have been the guy sitting on the throne of and being king of Israel, the descendant, royal descendant from David. So, so Jesus would have inherited that role legally from the ancestry of Joseph. So he is known as son of Joseph. He's known as son of Mary. And there are passages in Luke where it talks about them being his parents, plural. Now we know that biologically that's not true because of the passages that explain that. 
But what I want you to see is that idea of son does not mean that God had a baby. God had a son. Now, what that means is that the God who is called the Word, that God, came into the human race through a very unique way. And that's what that word means. We observed his glory, the glory as of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That one and only Son from the Father, those marks of distinction then become the barometer or become the way we distinguish between God, the Word, who is the Son, sent by the Father into the world to take a human form, and the one who is God, remaining in heaven, Jesus would call his Father. Now, does that confuse you? I hope it refreshes you. I hope it helps us put in perspective what Mary's role was, and I hope it helps us understand how those words are used in Scripture, that Jesus being Son of God means much, 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 much more than that he descended from the Father. He was sent by the Father, but he existed equal with the Father in the beginning and even before that. The only begotten Son of God, that the one and only, means that Jesus came into, into being in the womb of Mary through a unique process. Only one human has ever or will ever be virgin conceived. Only one. And that's Jesus. His body was conceived. His soul and spirit, his deity, his person as the word of God preexisted. So when we talk about Father and Son, when we talk about God the Father and God the Son, we are in no way diminishing God the Son, and we should never, ever, ever, ever do that. We should understand that everything that Jesus did, he did voluntarily. He did it volitionally. He did it out of his own choice, and he did it as God the Word being subject to the will of the Father. When we get to his baptism, we then compound the problem because at his baptism, God the Word is wet. God the Father speaks. And another person of the Godhead, the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, appears in the form of a dove. But we, we're not trying tonight to untangle all that. But what I'm trying to say is that when you look at that baby in the manger, you need to think, not my, what a cute baby boy. What you need to think is, that's the word. And as human, as human, we understand him and talk of him as God the Son. And we speak of him only as 
the Son of the Father, we speak of him only in that regard, to distinguish and mark out that he in his lifetime was totally dependent upon God, God the Father, and God, the Holy Spirit, the other two members of the Trinity, to provide for him all that he spoke, all that he did. And he never violated, never once did he violate the Father or the Spirit by taking independent action and exercising his own divine attributes. That's the way you need to see him. Now, notice something. John says, we observed his glory. John was one of the disciples who walked with Jesus for a period of two and a half or three and a half years, depending upon how you understand certain passages in John. Come to that in just a minute. But John here tells us that his distinct greatness, his distinct glory was something that that John could observe, something that John could look at and recognize and, and certify, certify. Notice the last part of this marvelous passage. You read in verse, verse 10, we all have received grace after grace from his fullness. Although the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, God, the one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. Um, what John's struggling with here, I know, is that God the Spirit remains unassailable by human eyes. God the Father remains unassailable. We cannot see them. But they become seen in and through this person, God the Word, this person who took the name Jesus, this person who took human flesh in the womb of Mary, this person who lived or tabernacled or dwelt as man among men. And through him, we see what God is like. That's what John's saying. He's saying that up until this time, God dwelt as a mystery, couldn't be comprehended, couldn't be understood, couldn't be fathomed. But in Jesus, God breaks himself down. When you come to my house and the sun is shining, the sun will strike some cute little things my wife has stuck up on the windows. And when that light passes through those little things, it'll hit and be refracted. And it'll burst into all kinds of beams of color in the room. It's the same light. It's invisible until it hits that, that little glass thing or plastic, whatever it is. And when that invisible light strikes that little plastic or glass thing, 
that light is broken into or refracted, separated into its various components. And you'll see those components on the wall or on the table as rays of color. That's what Jesus did. Jesus became glass. He became substance. He became flesh. He stood, lived, worked, loved, wept, taught as a man to men. And in doing that, he broke the invisible light, the invisible God. He refracted that and into visible activities, words, and promises, and trusts. No one has ever seen God, but the Son, the uniquely born Son, uh, he has revealed him. How can he do that? Well, because he is the one who is at the Father's side, at the Father's bosom. And that's designed to tell us that while he was here in his flesh, he was at the same time inseparably united with Father. Distinct from him? Yes. Just like the first two verses say, with God was in the beginning with God. With God, yes. He remained with God when he became flesh so that his proximity with God, his oneness with God, his his unique relationship as being God with God, refracted out in his life, in his words, in his deeds, and we now see what God is like. You want to, want to know what the Father is like? Look at Jesus. Jesus himself said that. He said, if you've seen me, Thomas, you've seen the Father. The Father is like me. Well, how could he say that? He could say that because during the whole time of his earthly journey, the Son never ceased to be the Word, never was, well, once was separated from God. But with that exception, the intimacy of their relationship continued so that John saw and correctly wrote that Jesus never ceased to be away from the Father, never broke away from the Father was always in the bosom of the Father. And the bosom of the Father means that the Son was as close to the Father as was possible, having separate identity, equality of deity, intimacy of relationship, and that's what you see in Jesus. You see refracted the fullness of Godhead broken down into bits and pieces that we can a bit understand and grasp. Of course, the one time when, when Jesus was separated from the Father was where? On the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, forsaken me? And we know that, that that's what death is. And if God the Son would take the penalty of all the sins and sin itself from all humanity and become the bearer of that huge debt and become the payer of that huge responsibility. 
then the son must experience separation. Separation. And that's what that prayer is designed to say to us. So in that moment, God the son experienced something that was more miraculous than his resurrection. Yeah, the greatest miracle of the incarnation is the separation of the Son from the Father and the Spirit as sinful man's appropriate sacrifice. Now, I, I know what you're thinking. I mean, I could, <laughs> boy, this is awfully deep tonight. Well, I want it to be deep. I, I, I want you to think with me. What's being stolen from us, from our hearts, from our emotions, what's being, what's being emotionalized, what's being trivialized is this deep, dark, incredible mystery of how God could be three in one, how God, the Word, could somehow limit himself to become like us, one of us. And as one of us, use that platform to show us God, to tell us about God, to let us see what God's really like in little bits and colors and pieces and hues that we can manage. That was only possible because of the unique way he came into the world. Now, turn with me to chapter 2, and, and I'll pick up the pace a bit, I promise. John says, we saw his glory. John, John said, I was with him, and I saw his glory. Saw his glory. Now, look at, look at chapter 2 of John, and look with me, please, in verse 4. You know the story. Jesus has been baptized by John. He's faced off with the devil and one in the wilderness. He's returned now back to, uh, to his hometown, Nazareth. He now has six disciples we know of that are following him as his followers. And, and he apparently arrives home, and mom's not there. And he discovers that mom's over Cana at a, at a wedding, probably a family relation. So Jesus and his disciples, they, they go over to the wedding. They were invited to come as well. And perhaps because of the expansion of the crowd, we don't know, but they ran out of wine. They, they didn't have this beverage that was so critical to the, the traditional wedding of Jewish people. Now, his mother goes to Jesus and says they don't have any wine, implying what? Do something, Jesus. Do something. Jesus is now 30 years old. Mary has undoubtedly heard about certain things Jesus has already done. Things he said. What happened at his baptism? Okay, they don't have any wine. And Jesus responds, verse 4, What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Now the word woman there is not a put down, but it is a leveler. He uses the same word of Mary at the foot of the cross. Woman, behold your son. John, behold your mother. What's happening here is that at 30 years of age, having been baptized, uh, Jesus is gently and yet very clearly 
in John's hearing, John's there, John sees this. Jesus is very clearly sending a signal, Mom, it's not like it's been the last 30 years. My life has changed. I am now under the anointing, on the fullness of the Spirit of God. I'm about my Father's business. Woman. Woman. The distance between God, the Word, tabernacling in that body provided through Mary's womb, now 30 years old, and this incredible woman who was his mother and is his mother, the difference between the two needs to be gently and firmly affirmed. Mom, you are a woman. I am more than man. I am more than your son. And look how he bridges it. Look, what is this concern of yours, woman, to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What's that? Hour? Now think of it. In this book of John, John's going to give us seven special signs, seven special miracles that Jesus did, which point out or which signify, which authenticate, which demonstrate, which illustrate his true, eternal God deity. And when John thinks of how to start this book, where he's going to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and, and by believing in him you can have life eternal, because that's the purpose he wrote the book. When John thinks through how he's going to do this, he starts with the first of the seven miracles he records, and his mind goes raging back to that experience of Cana, and he's arrested again in his memory of the significance of that moment. Woman, your concern about the wine has no bearing on me. My hour has not yet come. The Father and the Spirit become perceptible to our senses in Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, as Colossians tells us. For all those who say they'd believe if God would just come down and have a cup of coffee with them, that's what Christmas commemorates. And we have one more part of this sermon to share with you on Christmas Day, Monday. So please make Right Start a part of your festivities. The message title is, He Became Flesh for Us. You can own the sermon on CD for a gift of $7 or more. Hang on for ordering information. But first, thank you to everyone who prayed and who donated so that we could hear this word. There are only a few days left if you'd like to help us end 2023 in the black, recharged and ready to take on the new year. Your gifts always make a difference, but especially now. And when you give to Right Start, we don't harass you with endless appeals. If you'd like to help, please mail us at Right Start, P.O. Box 437, Worthington, Ohio, 43085 USA by phone call 1-800-984-2313 that's 800-984-2313 on the web rightstartradio.org 
There you can hear this radio program again, play programs from the audio library, and you can play or download the entire sermons. If your schedule makes it difficult for you to catch the show every day, click the On iTunes link to get a free daily dose of Right Start as a podcast. You can donate securely online too at rightstartradio.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Dan Pope. The purpose of the divine invasion of our world was greater than most of us have imagined. That's the part we've saved for Monday's broadcast. Please be with us then for the Christmas edition of Right Start. Right Start.